it's a pretty special dish to be presented with an entire split pig that's been roasted for X amount of hours with all these gorgeous little garnishes. I mean, the apples we had to turn for that dish sent me down on more than one occasion. It was definitely a stressful time when someone had ordered like what was this beautiful showpiece of this lovely local pig. Um, they're pretty special. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Not everyone grows up in a family where food, cooking and techniques are passed down from generation to generation. But for Richard Oosby, this is exactly the environment he grew up in. Hooked on the magic in the kitchen from a young age, it was an easy transition to an amazing career in food. Richard, how are you? Yeah, great. Thanks. How are you? Good. Good to get you on the show. I think last time I saw you was a few moons ago on a boat in WA. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe a chopper was involved or something like that. (laughs) You've done some pretty extraordinary uh, things in your career, but it it all sort of started in the family kitchen. What what was it like sort of back then for you as a kid? Um, I think, I don't know. Well, I was just actually thinking about it just before and all the great little sort of flavour memories or different memories I had. And I actually thought of a gold one before. I Just my first experience of fennel. I think we were in the backyard. We lived in Bathurst and we had half an acre and there was a big a big vegetable garden. I mean, there's asparagus crowns in the corner. You just pick fresh asparagus and just eat it off the, off the ground. Um, but the fennel, we were, I think we'd broken some of the shed off the side of the shed and was using it as a ninja star to throw across the yard. And it just started cutting through this, we didn't know what it was, but it turned out to be just sort of flowering fennel. And we're like, wow, that smells amazing. So just cutting this thing, just throwing this ninja star across the yard to then have mum bust out of her pottery, <laughs> asking us what we were doing in a, in a lovely way, I'm sure. Um, and I can just, I can smell it um, right now when I was thinking about it, to be honest. So there was lots of cool little things like that, that at the time I had no idea were, were that special but you know moving on and living in a city in a bigger city now oh just yeah I kind of yearn for those things a little bit well take us back to those times do you have any stories of your mother and grandmother and and cooking with them and, and the experiences you had yeah so always at nan's house you'd go up well, I think we were up there well I went there every afternoon after school it was just in front of the school I'd drop in there nan would give me some biscuits for my long journey home, which was well, it was a bunch of blocks, but not that far. Um, but she always had, you know, you'd look in her fridge and there'd be a pot with a plate on it and there'd be some lamb's tongue that had been cooked sitting in a pot. So, you, you know, occasionally you'd have a few slices of lamb's tongue or, or Nan's legendary cake was always at everyone's birthday. Everyone would be like, oh, yeah, we're just having the Sheila's cake or Nan's cake. Um and just, I don't know, there was, there was bread cooking at our house always as a kid. Um, I managed to burn myself many times making pumpkin soup or jelly or whatever we happened to be making. Rush up to the hospital and be, oh, the Oosbys are here at the hospital, just getting bandage him up, away you go. <laughs> you know, we had, I, two, I had well, a bunch of brothers and a sister, so it was always pretty busy um, with food. And, you know, like... Cherries didn't come in a plastic bag, they came in a tray, you know, just everything was a box of this or a box of that. You went to the sorting shed and picked it up on the way through, wherever you happened to be going, and it kind of was 
a lovely excess, you know, which was fantastic. When did you first start to sort of think about a career in food? I think I, it was pretty early on. I mean, I, with some kids saying they're going to be a fireman, I was saying I was going to be a chef. So I don't know why, I don't know why or where that came from, but I just stuck to it. I don't, I don't, I don't know how a I really enjoyed it and, you know, love doing it and always have. So I, I guess it just was part of me maybe before I was born. You mentioned that you grew up in Bathurst, but your career sort of started in Brisbane and an, an apprenticeship. Tell us about the move and, and the change to a bigger city for you like that. Well, we went even bigger to start with. So my most of my parents are teachers and my mum's a potter. And so we, Dad accepted a job in the Australian International School in Singapore so we went from Bathurst, wow. cold Bathurst, to Singapore um, to kick things off, which is probably a bit bigger jump than I realised at the time. <laughs> um, but it was, was, I think maybe that's where I fell in love with food. Suddenly you're in hawk centres, it's bustling, you know, you're just choosing all these different things and there's, you know, the hive of activity surrounding food in um, those to that hawker culture. Mm. Um, yeah, and then we kind of got the taste for the warmth i think or well, mum mum and dad definitely did and then so we went back to bathurst and then we quickly moved to brisbane <laughs> really want to be freezing our freezing our body so it was off to the off to the warmth of the tropics and we've never looked back i mean everyone still lives a couple of suburbs away my brother-in-law my mum and dad so it's kind of we came queenslanders now perhaps 20-something years on. Tell us about those first steps into your apprenticeship and, and what it was like for you uh, in the commercial kitchen. I think I had a, I had a great start. Like, so I was at school and I had traineeship or apprenticeship or whatever it was called. Um, and it was a friend, a friend's mother's partner. He had op- they'd opened this little cafe. Um, he was Japanese, uh, named Tom. And we, he, you know, I was a trainee. We did, I think he did a couple of nights and a couple of days. It was not even open that much, but I'd go in there. He was very generous in relation to he'd, someone that had really never held a knife. He'd order a whole fish in and we'd cut up the fish uh, or some chickens or whatever. And then we'd sit down and eat the butchered bits that I did for lunch probably. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I think just having that delicate, delicate start was probably a pretty special special time not unbeknown to me um and then kind of got into you know finished school and got into a bit busier restaurant it was kind of a busy italian restaurant called alberto's in paddington Mm. and the sort of place where on tuesday they did two for one family meals so just suddenly do 200 people on a tuesday dinner just it was all pretty family friendly. So the pizza bases were bought in. There was lots of things that were bought in, but it was mm. all finished with a bit of love and of Italian flavours. Um, but very different from that one kit, one chef, <laughs> small yeah. kitchen to this busy, you know, ten person brigade pumping out. A friend of mine, John, got me the job there. He was a kitchen hand, and he, you know, he said, "I've got a man that can wants to cook." So here's me making Caesar salads for <laughs> two hundred people and. <laughs> Off we went. Do you remember any um, pork dishes from that time? Italian cuisine is rich with um, all sorts of pork dishes. 
Yeah, so they did, they did a version of uh, the Fio Scolopini with a pork um, pork loin, like mm. sliced and bashed out, and it was kind of a seafoody sauce. So I, th- I, I remember the hood catching fire when they made the sauce, the brandy and watched it one time, <laughs> but that was probably a different issue. Um, but yeah, it had this, it was seared in the oil, and then they threw in this sauce, the dead, sorry, the brandy deglaze that then this sort of rich creamy seafood sauce would go in and then bang you know 30 seconds later it's out the door so very that fast fresh mm. uh italian style i guess early on in your career like many uh you ventured over to the uk tell us about that period of time what, what was that experience like for you i'll tell you what it was a baptism of fire it was um, it was really good i actually i didn't i'd never worked so hard and absorbs like I thought I'd done my apprenticeship, so to speak. Mm. But when I did that, I went there. You like you start from the ground roots. So working for the Rue brothers or Alan and Michelle um, was was intense. So you, you know, you'd start work at. I think there was a piece of paper on the door when you entered saying you're allowed to start work at six thirty, no earlier. And you were no later than seven o'clock. Was your you said it was a window of time, depending on how much you had to do, that you're allowed to be entering the kitchen. Um, thankfully, a friend. Well, I befriended the baker, so I could go in early if needed, because he was and he was always he was a little croissant for you. Because in they had rooms above, so mm. he'd be in there at four o'clock, fresh bread for the rooms, um, all that. So, and you weren't allowed to drink your coffee in the kitchen; it had to be drunk at the coffee machine drink your coffee then you can start work so it was all it was very regimented which is was probably good for me um you know it's, it's a it's an institution in the world and still is so i loved getting in there early i loved you know we had so on when i first started on garmoger there there was five young chefs preparing the vegetables from 6 a.m to 1 a.m just non-stop <laughs> it was amazing wow. the amount of veg that came in the door every day, you kind of thought, oh, yeah, we did a good day. We got on top of things. Next day, 50 boxes of edge arrives, and you're just like, oh, God, let's go. we've got to go again on this. Now, one person just chopped herbs all day, every day. So it was a pretty demoralizing for some, but once you crack through the, the crust of it, so to speak, you, could, you gain respect fast enough, you know, and it was pretty organized in relation to you couldn't swear out loud you couldn't say boo this time you did that this time you did that you know it was they kept the cloths were counted on the way in the clouded on the way out it was mm. not, a, not a beat was missed your time with uh, at the waterside inn take us back there was were there any sort of um, butchery lessons that you'd learnt or, or pork dishes that sort of changed your way of thinking with cooking the simplicity of a roasted pig is something, you know, like you're in one of the best restaurants in the world, yet someone's ordered a whole pig to be served at their banquet in the private room. And the amount of, you know, like finessing and organising and whatever that goes into getting that to those people at a three-star level was was quite stressful. But, you know, I mean, it's a pretty special dish to be presented with an entire split pig that's been roasted for X amount of hours with all these gorgeous little garnishes. I mean, the apples we had to turn for that dish sent me down on more than one occasion. Um, it was definitely a stressful time when someone had ordered like 
what was this beautiful showpiece of this lovely local pig. Um, they're pretty special. And I, learnt, I first learned how to do crackling there, which was, I think that's something that everyone needs in their repertoire. And I, a friend of mine, an Englishman, because so staff meal at the waterside was cooked by one chef for the whole week. So you got rostered on staff meal and you did breakfast and you did lunch. Um, <clears throat> oh, sorry, lunch and dinner. And you worked very hard to get that meal up for 40 people of a family meal. And Sunday was always roast pork. So big, two big racks of roast pork, uh, or maybe it was four, but a bunch of roast pork every every Sunday. It was England, so it made sense. Um, but many a many a young chef had fallen down on that Sunday lunch, and a friend of mine who's a he's a, he's a good fella, um, he taught me how to do it really well. Just because you didn't, it's not like you could dry the pork for a week or something. You were given it on the day the butcher. So they had a butcher in house. And he, you know, he cut it up for you, got it to you, um, and away you went. You mentioned that was when you first learnt how to do crackling. Tell us about the secret to, to great crackling. Secret to great crackling when you've got a time constraint is we just do the boiled hot water. Just work that skin with boiled hot water till you can get those, all those, um, I guess, nice little grooves puffed up a bit. Um, and then... The ovens, I don't know what was different about those ovens, but they were great. They were these, I think they were ceramic, they had a ceramic basin in these ovens and they were drop ovens. So I think they had a nice, dry, even rounded heat. Um, no fan, nothing like that. And, then, and I never really thought about it till now, to be honest, but it must be something to do with getting that nice big piece roasted. And I think the size is important as well. I mean, if you get too small, you, to get that not still good in the inside but nice and crackled on the outside is always going to be tough. When you came back to Australia, you worked at a string of incredible restaurants. What, what were the real sort of major stepping stones for you early on in your career in Australia? I guess um, coming when we came back, we kind of always intended to go back to Europe. And, and I don't know why that didn't happen. Oh, and actually, I remember why. We moved to Sydney. My wife got a job as a flight attendant, long haul. So Virgin had just started doing long haul flights and we moved to Sydney for that, um, which was perfect for me because I kind of knew that's where I wanted to be in Australia for the style of restaurants. Um, and I started working for, at Key under Peter Gilmore um, and uh, I just loved it there. I mean, I don't know. I, didn't, I think I fell in love with the big brigade at the waterside and it was just, I was just right at home there. You know, these big... Lots of sections, lots of people organising everything, a lot going on every day. I was just right in my element. Um, it was, yeah, it was it was a great time, and it you know, key was at the top of the top of the list at that point. So it was special to be involved at that point. Peter Gilmore is one of the most influential chefs in Australia. Do, do you have any stories of what it's like to actually work with him? He's lovely. He's such a nice guy. I mean, I think I think as far as mentors i kind of have a list of a bunch of people but i think he's right up he's right up there in relation to he taught me how to deal with people you know deal with people in large brigade deal with people on a daily basis when you're under high pressure he was just he'd come in he was always a bit of a chuckle have a chat about things you know he might not know your name depending how long you had been there but that didn't really matter in the context of he gave you some time said hello you know checked what was happening talked about whatever he needed to um 
and then he was off again and come back in the middle of service and get back into it. So it, it was a good time to work for him because he was there. You saw him every shift, you know, like he, he, did, he only had the one restaurant at that point, and I'm sure he goes into every his restaurants all the time now, but it was a, it was a really special person to learn from because he kind of thought about food in a way totally different to me and different to the way I think about food now as well even. Just he could see something in each ingredient. I don't know if I could still, you know, like the shape of something or the or the flavour it might have if you applied this or, you know, you can just, yeah, you're a pretty special dude. <laughs> Peter's credited for the sort of wave of pork belly dishes um, across the country and, and also the pork jowl as well, which is really starred. Do, do you have any experiences of what it was like in the kitchen dealing with pork at, at Key at that time? The jowl in particular was a big job. So it'd be, you know, boxes and boxes of jowls would arrive every day. And at this point, jowls were, I don't know, I don't, they weren't exactly throwaway, but they were pretty cheap. Um, and he kind of turned this cheap cut into this champion of of the key um, degustation. So the one it was there was there was lots of different pork dishes over the years, like you said. There was the belly with the abalone and the shaved squid, which was a pretty famous dish and a very intense plate up with silken tofu and the, had a little garlic shoot stuffed in the top of each one and this this garlic chives sort of draped over each piece of silken tofu and this perfect ring where it all had to sit and the bellies had to be this size and you know it was pretty exceptional but my one of my favorites was definitely the jowl and it was um we cooked them overnight and then we you know set them clean them to these perfect little pillows um and then you'd so to order they'd get heated on papillot each individual portion taken out then this maltose crust would go over the top which is uh basically you know, a type of sugar so you've got a, a crackling made of sugar and then these beautiful prunes i think they're from south australia that have been cooked in exo and just exo and uh exo vinegar i think and this lovely rich cauliflower puree that had been you know just at this whipped cream had just been folded in just at the last minute just to lighten it up and give it this sort of loving richness I mean, it's, yeah, it's one of those dishes of the, of the century for sure. You spent a lot of time with the Stokehouse group. Um, tell us about that time leading up to that and how you got that gig. So we'd moved back to Queensland um, to a change of life, I think. We just kind of decided that, you know, we'd lived in Sydney for almost four years at that point. We kind of maybe wanted to come home or there was a, lot, there was a few things at play with life and family. Um and we, I kind of, <laughs> and I guess I'd also just competed in a bunch of competitions and done quite well. So kind of, I kind of ticked a few things off a list, uh, I guess. Um, and we came back and I was like dead set on opening a restaurant and having a farm. I was like, yep, that's what I'm going to do. And after all the money ran out, my wife said, you better get a job. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, oh yeah, okay. I'd heard about Stokehouse. I knew I knew they were of, of high quality, <clears throat> and just so happens via whatever the world, I opened up Seek, and there was a job going at Stokehouse for the sous chef, sous chef. And I thought, oh yeah, I could apply for that. So I went in, 
had had about a series of I think it was about three interviews in the end with Tony Kelly, um, and and got a job. It was it was seemingly easy after dressing up in a suit three times in a row and wondering why we had so many damn interviews. Well, yeah, we got there in the end, um, and that was I mean then proceeded to spend the next six and a half years there. It was really. I've got so many fond memories of that place and perhaps because I wasn't in the thick of making sure there was enough butter in the sauce, I kind of experienced it in a totally new way. Um, kind of going from being the sous chef to being the head chef really fast, I think it was about seven months later or six months later. And then probably you know, a couple, two years later, I was the executive chef of that one and the one in Melbourne. So I kind of just... The acceleration was fast and it was, you kind of didn't have a time to think about it any more than living in it. Um, it was really amazing time. My, my old boss, Peter McMahon, who, a friend of mine still, I kind of just got so many fond memories of like throwing stuff at him, him coming back with great stuff and me going, okay, perfect, we'll move forward like this or, yeah, it was, it was just a whirlwind. Looking looking back at that sort of quick transition through the kitchen at a really influential restaurant group, um, looking back now at yourself, what, what what was it like back then compared to sort of what you know now? Yeah, very. It was, I think I learned well, not to say too much, but I learned so much that I kind of you can't. I can't go back to just cooking simply anymore. I don't know if that makes sense. I kind of know a lot about, well, I feel like I do, the industry and the restaurants and, you know, all these, having the, all the P&L meetings and all this sort of interesting stuff that takes you far past radish is a radish and a garlic clove is a garlic clove. Now a pork chop is a pork chop. There's a lot that, I mean, I think very differently about it now. And I think that's a good thing. It just It's just a different path that I maybe would have gone if I'd stayed in fine dining restaurants exclusively and kind of worked on the pass. So, yeah, I don't know. It was a, a whirlwind. You briefly mentioned that you won a few awards, um, you know, around about a decade ago. You won um, multiple Young Chef of the Year awards. What, tell us about those experiences um, and do you have any stories of, of that time? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I lots of fond memories of that time. I... Uh, Competed in what was called uh, Appetite. It was, I think, it was called Appetite for Excellence at that point, but it was, it's known as that now, anyway. Um, and it was Electrolux Young Chef of the Year, and I kind of entered, um, knowing this is the sort of thing that I, I'd want to do. I'd, I'd been in competitions before, and I, me and Ben Devlin were lucky enough to win um, the Nestle Golden Chef's Hat. I think it was probably eight years prior or six years prior or something like that. Um, and I kind of cut my teeth with him on that. And it was good to have a, it was good to have a teammate, to be honest, because it's, it's a stressful thing standing there in front of the best of the best in your industry, <laughs> saying that you've got what it takes to be, to be number one. Um, so the Appetite for Excellence comp um, was, was around, was when I worked at Key. Um, I'd entered with uh, a friend of mine that worked there, D, and she she came, I think, People's Choice or second the year we went in together, and I kind of flunked out. I went a bit too hard. My dishes didn't work. 
on the day. You had one hour, so it's kind of I kind of pack a million things into a dish and and came up short. But I kind of realised I could go again, you know. And I think I think that's what's great about a, programs like that is they, you know, you get a, you get as many cracks at it as you want essentially if you're in if you fit the requirements. Um, so I went in the next year, and uh, and went really well. I mean, so much so that I I won in the end. But it's a yeah. Well, I, what did I cook that year? Um, well, shaved tiramisu kingfish with uh, a little custard and a few things, which was very Peter Gilmore key sort of dish. Um, and the competition, the prize for it was to compete in another competition, which seems a bit rude to be honest. But so, so we the next year uh, got on a plane and went to Italy to compete in what was called the San Pellegrino Cup. Um, it was pretty cool. I mean, whoever thought of that was a, was smart in relation to marketing, but also it's just a cool thing for, for, for chefs and all people in the community. So basically the, it's a yacht race. There's two parts to it. The first part is like a, a big gala dinner where all the young chefs involved, 10 from it, from 10 different countries make a dish, um, that I mean any dish to be honest um, and you make a dish present it on the night for about a hundred people at your own little station and you have a little Italian boy helping you um, and this is at a hotel in the middle of Venice um, so make that dish then the next day is a yacht race whereby everyone on the yacht well not everyone sorry there's a chef on each yacht and I think there was about 40 yachts 60 there's a lot of yachts but not everyone's a chef on the yachts some of them are just local cooks or you know that's all doesn't matter who but everyone presents a dish at the end of the race um and then there's sort of the best dish or the you know best amateur dish or lots of different versions and the likes of like Massimo Batura and David Scabini and all these sort of people are sitting at the end waiting for the dishes um and you know, so we're on this yacht, tacking out to out to the bay. Then it kind of turns around to come back, um, come back in, and this huge storms rolling in, um, and it was oh, it was a, I my mean, own was was sick a number of times just being downstairs on a gimbaled stove, trying to make food while a yacht is racing. It's not what how kitchens are designed on boats. You're not supposed to be down there when it's like that. Um, well, as far as I can tell, uh, but so I made this dish, just got it over the line and then about to serve it. And they say, no, nah, the race is, the race is kind of not canceled, but you, no one can dock. Let's all go back to the bay. So I'm about to serve my, the dish and this storm's rolling in really hard. So they kind of call that part of it off where everyone has to go back in to port and they kind of, everyone drops their dish off at the at the shed at the at the boat shed so to speak um and i kind of thought it was all over at that point i was like damn my dish we kind of was on point at the time when we we're going to send it but now it's been sitting around for half an hour you know like it's a it was a little grilled fish thing and it's not going to be any good um but you know it was that was that was life and i kind of so then we went back to the hotel and i was just waiting around um because we had to go to the gala dinner at that point 
a few hours later and I kind of got a call saying you need to come down you need to go on this boat to the you just need to go on this boat and I was like okay sure I'll come down so I get dressed quickly go down get on this boat and like the head of head of marketing for San Pellegrino is there some other lady some other people get in this speedboat because it's pretty <laughs> I don't know going to Venice on someone else's money and staying in these nice hotels and the speedboats involved and you're cruising around it was a pretty special feeling just jump like get on this speedboat zip around to this yacht club I'm kind of standing around there having a beer everyone's speaking Italian and they're kind of going oh yeah you got nice to meet you nice to meet us like hey okay, cool yeah great and then um, they kind of make an announcement that our boat had won the, the yacht race on points and I was like, oh, that's what I'm here for. Oh, that's great. Cool. We, we did really well. And then they said, your dish was the best on, out of the, out of the, the sort of the yacht race dishes. But that kind of still wasn't the gala dinner announcements or anything. This was just like, oh, yeah, cool. There's all these Italian people and all the – turns out my team was the ex-Olympic racing team for yachts. And I was like, ah, oh, that's why we did so well. Okay, fair enough. We had, we had a pretty good – we had a pretty good team. Um, and then we jump back in one of these speedboats and off we go to another thing and kind of at this big, huge dinner in an old, I think it was an old monastery or something, like these gorgeous big gardens and, you know, like just to excess as relation to the food and this opulence and it was pretty special. Um, and, you know, you're kind of sitting there with all these so I guess there was lot there was lots of people invited from each country in relation to selling water. Um, so like there's um, some great Australian importers, which are lovely people, um, and just you know there was a sort of an Australian team on my table. So we're chatting, having a good time, and then kind of the tensions building, and it's time for the for the big announcement. Um, and kind of all these names have been read out about this people's choice and this and then and they kind of read my name out and I was kind of like wait a minute this is the one so yeah I kind of yeah managed to win it and I don't know how but obviously did enough on the day um or a number of days it was pretty yeah and then we went on a world not a world tour a tour of uh all through Italy with the with the same people yeah one of the features of, of your career has been real connection with producers. Um, do you have any stories of those connections you've made with pig farmers? Yeah, the Schultz family were great. I mean, they they have a they've. I mean, there's lots of Schultzes out that way, Toowoomba way. Um, the Schultz family, like Vaughan and his family, I kind of met them through um, through Ben, and uh, and I. Just loved them. They're really lovely. You know, he's like a, I'm gonna say architect, come pig farmer. I don't know. If that's exactly what he did, but he definitely was good at growing pigs. And we used to buy every other week a couple, about 25 kilo. And I, I don't know exactly how we got to wanting a particular pig that size. I think the thinking was the suckling pig. We couldn't get enough yield out of it. We didn't want the bigger pig. We could roast individual cuts of a like about a twenty-five kilo pig. Um, I think they're Yorkshire whites, um, and you know, like you could take the back strap off. You could take the, you could get the rump and kind of break it down to a bunch of muscles. Keep a little bit of skin on, roast a couple of portions at a time, 
you know, get a bit of crackling going on. That was pretty young pigs, so there's not a lot of thick skin or anything, but you can get a bit of crunch going on. And so it was a bit more versatile for us. For us. You know, slow cook the shoulders for a day or two. Mm-hmm. That's how we came to it, but it was great. I mean, I think, we, you know, there's a point where you're just like, well, can we have four pigs? And he's like, mate, I can't give you that many pigs today. <laughs> like, you can have a 50-kilo pig, you can have a 9-kilo pig, or I can give you two 25ers. And I was like, okay, that's fine. Um, so it was, it was perfect. It was Yeah, and they, they were lovely. I mean, I even took my mates there for his – we went on a – we had a kind of a bucks party, which was just going to farms, picking up produce, and then going into the bush and cooking it all. It was, it was awesome. We walked, took all my mates there, and suddenly there's 20 dudes – just hanging around on this big farm, just chatting and talking about life. So, Richard, what are you doing um, these days with your career? You left the Stoke House uh, in 2019, and the world changed dramatically since then. What, what's it been like for you? Yeah, kind of a good. I had a bit of a hiatus year. I had two little. I still do have two little kids. It kind of took a year to take a bit of time and travel around, and you know, live a bit of life outside of pumping it out every day um and now i kind of i'd it was interesting so after all that again out of money and kind of had needed to get a job but COVID had just started so i kind of was a bit stressed about that um not knowing where to go what to do and how to be in that that new space that we all experienced um you know as for hospitality now in the COVID world and a friend of mine, Annie, had said, okay, well, how about you come and talk to these guys at Crew? They want someone to, their current deal is they have a, they outsource their food and they've got these, you know, great venues. Um, and at the same time, a winery had asked me to do the same thing. And I kind of thought, oh, maybe there's something in this. You know, I don't know. All these things are saying you want to do, can you, can you sort this problem for us? We know about booze. Can you sort out the food? And I said, yeah, okay, we'll give this a go. So here we are, two and a bit years on. Um, I've no longer doing that, working with that winery, and that's just because it was just logistically hard, to be honest. It's just an hour and twenty minutes, an hour and a half away. It was only operating two days a week for food, from our perspective. So it just got hard in relation to logistically finding people for those short shifts, two days. But you know, on James Street with crew and crew bar and sixes and sevens. It's kind of it's working quite well, and it's it's they married married each other quite well, um, and I've got enough people, so yeah, it's 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 pretty good. This change uh, in the way you uh, run your career, what, what what are you loving about um, what's different about it and what you're doing? You can, I think, what I like about it is if you if you if you want to work really hard, you can, but if you want to have have a three or four day working week. And push yourself a little bit harder on some other days. You can as well. You're not, you're not strapped to the roster, so to speak, in the same way. Well, that's where I try to get to with my staffing. Is, you know, like you can kind of tweak it a little bit. My brothers, while I'm on doing this, digging a hole in my yard because we're putting a new gate in. Um, so we kind of, you know, it's flexible in life with kids. It's been fantastic. And will this be the the format forever? I'm not sure, but. It's great at the moment. It's really good and, and yeah, and makes a few dollars as well. The, the kitchens that you cut your teeth in, how different are they to sort of the modern commercial kitchen? How, how do you 
um, treat and create a brigade for, for these venues? Yeah, it is very different. Um, it's interesting, you know, like I still think, I don't know, there's a different level of uh, commitment to a kitchen perhaps I think is the issue. And I think once once I got over, not everyone's as committed as I was, that's okay, you know, like you just you just duck and weave and, and slot people in where they're happy to work and if they're only available one day a week, that might still work for me. Um, so I, it's a different in relation to I feel like all the kitchens I worked at when I was younger, everyone was dedicated to the cause, dedicated to the cause. It was about each plate. It was about the making the experience. And now I guess I'm in more of a business a business business in relation to okay we need these people to do this on that day and that's and you know i'm happy to have a beer with them and relax with them and chat and keep it all together but they're not going to be as passionate as i was and that's okay earlier on you mentioned about the secret to crackling and and your time at the waterside inn um and you said it's sort of a fast way when you're under pressure to get crackling right is, is there a way that you do it in kitchens these days that sort of may take a bit bit more time and um can get a great result i think it's just getting that skin dried out i mean that's what i always do i mean we roast a pork belly at one of the venues and i just leave it unwrapped for about four days you just you need to score that just get it dried out there's no i mean there's, that's not the fast way but it definitely is effective and i mean good you know you kind of you need a pork belly that's got a bit of skin to it and a bit of fat you don't want to be you know roasting a lean pork belly as much as people talk about lean meat once you roast it all the all the fats in the tray anyway so you may as well have roasted a fatty piece You've uh, made the transition to um, working on big venues and, and consulting as well. Um, what's next for you? don't know. I mean, I'm kind of just living the flow, so to speak. That sounds a bit, you know, I kind of, I, I'm searching out things. I want to I wanna keep experiencing more and keep learning. Um, and whether that's, I don't think that learning is how to chop the chives correctly. That's just learning about, I was only talking to my brother who's a builder and I was saying why don't we buy little shop fronts and turn them into places and you know like go down that route and learn you know live that life you know so I don't think it looks any particular way I just want to keep evolving and trying things out and and experiencing you know the world through restaurants and food and cafes or whatever comes our way. Well, Richard, it's an absolute honour to have you on The Crackling today to hear your story. Um, Please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Thanks very much for having me. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.